0: Homes and Harbors Magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox, on the web at mainboats.com. Voices, Voices. 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 Voices.
1: Voices, Voices, the community audio magazine produced here at WERU. You can hear Voices every Tuesday afternoon at 4 and the weekend edition of Voices now at 10 o'clock on Saturday mornings. Only here
0: on
2: your community radio station, WERU.
0: This hour of Boat Talk is made possible in part by Gamble & Hunter Sailmakers, making sails for classic boats, cruising boats, and the main windjammers for over 20 years near the harbor in Camden, gambleandhunter.net.
1: It's just a few seconds before 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, and streaming online around the world at weru.org. Botalk with hosts Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce is up next.
3: Buy sales, sir. I
1: the take some home Good morning. It's uh, 10 o'clock on the second Tuesday of the month. Time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio, WERUFM fm Blue Hill. My name is Alan Sprague, and next to me here is Mike Joyce. We're the rusty anchors of Boat Talk, and here today with our good friend Captain Giffy Full to join us for a... Uh, an hour of uh, boat talk and uh probably a lot of water talk today too or maybe even oil on the water talk but we're going to go into uh, as many things as people would like to call up and talk about too it's a call-in show 18666259378 is a call-in number write that down now and,
0: um have you got to your pun yet? I'm no, sorry. I,
1: I'm sorry. I, I, I just realized a few seconds ago that I haven't really thought of a pun. I think I'm getting
0: a little dingy in my old age. Well, then we're all right now because <laughs> you, you covered yourself anyway. And we got to welcome Giffy back. Giffy, we missed you last week, uh, last month. You had a little accident, didn't you? <laughs> we won't go into that. Jump down a set of stairs. And like I say, uh, we're so glad you're back and, and uh, hope you're doing well this morning. Um. Sort of a full boat this morning, we would say, and Alan just gave out the phone number, but perhaps you might not call until we get uh, Dr. Doug Jeromak on the phone from the University of Pennsylvania early in the hour here. We'd like to talk to him about the concept of sea level, which is apparently not all at sea level. You think the sea is flat? Uh, Water? No, it's not. It's got ridges and valleys in it, and stuff does not roll uphill. So he's been working on uh, dispersion maps of the thing in the Gulf, and that'll be... Uh, some of what we'll talk about today, Senator Dennis Damon would like to call in too. Yep, he's a part of the Atlantic Fisheries Council down yep.
1: on the coast. We'll be talking with him probably in the second half of the hour.
0: If we're lucky, uh, Giffy and I were just speaking about booms. My friend Captain Sonny Perkins is an ex oil uh, uh, service supply tug captain and a boom expert and, and cleaned up several skills. Hopefully, we'll get to talk to him and you. And, and man, we're wow. <laughs> So anyway, let's start with the Boat Talk Cruise, Alan. we got to shut that up a oh little yes. bit.
1: The Boat Talk Cruise happened last month. It was a great time. It was very nice weather. Um, it was uh, a partly cloudy day, so sort of the end of the cruise. We had a nice, beautiful sunset. We went and saw the, uh, the ancient osprey nest, which I guess now is history.
0: I mean, it's still, it's
1: still there, but it's no longer occupied.
0: Oh, well, we'll see if that happens. Well, uh, there's again. a tree
1: growing out of it, so that there's, uh, yeah. If you oh, look that's interesting. There's about a two-foot tree growing out of it, which I think would make...
2: Well, the ospreys have gone green,
1: that's all. Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Giffy's the humorist my, <laughs>
0: uh, my degree in biology teaches me that an open niche in an ecosystem will get filled, you know. If uh-huh. you catch a trout out of this hole, another trout will move into it. But uh, that osprey nest is uh, interesting. Well, yeah. yeah, I wonder
1: if it's an indication of the g- decline of the osprey population. But anyway, with with only just the tree in the uh, nest now, that's, that's all that they leafed.
0: I was wondering if they maybe couldn't afford the real estate on Sutton's Island anymore. No, it's pricey you know, out, and it's kind of special out there, is, you know? They're probably getting a big tax bill. Yeah, moved on. Could be. Anyway, the Boat Talk cruise, man, we had uh, 65 or so uh, beautiful people out there. Uh, one, Only one kid this time. And uh, great food and drink, and, and just visited around the boat. Alan, uh, with Mr. Microphone, doing some commentary, and told some stories, and met some people, and and wow, that was a good time. Really it was a good enjoyed time. that. So anyway, we come back into the dock afterwards and mind you, we have uh um, you know, uh made money for the radio station through our ticket sales here and we've also put out a tip jar for the boat. We'd like to give the sea princess uh uh something back. Right. Yeah. And they don't
1: they don't run on love. But. No, uh
0: so we put out a tip jar and we give them a hundred odd bucks back for fuel and, and whatever and Alan and I are helping Captain Andy clean up the boat at the end there, and Andy says Gee, I don't understand why you guys don't do a fall cruise a too. Foliage cruise, right? Yeah, and I looked at him and said, "Well, Andy, if if uh, you know that's what you're saying, we're saying thank you." And <laughs> yeah. and, and, and when we thought about it for well, about two seconds, well, well, it's a good trip.
2: Uh, of course, the boat a favorite of mine, anyhow. Oh yeah. Uh, but uh, they, uh, I took my family, some of my family, out on a, about uh, three weeks ago. We had a had a nice day. And Giffy yeah.
1: designed the boat. And well, it, I helped design yeah. it. That's a
2: Way of Giffy yeah.
1: designed it, and then a naval architect looked at it and says what'd
0: you come to me for? Yeah. right?
2: <laughs> not, that's not quite true.
0: <laughs> so we will get back to you, but we're planning a fall uh, Boat Talk cruise, a uh, foliage cruise. It'll be a semi-dinner cruise again with a BYOB and bring the kids. And, and uh, you know, why not? We'll do it a little earlier in the afternoon. Yep. The boat is uh, its mostly enclosed. Uh, you know, we'll all be warm and happy and look forward to that. It's going to happen sometime in October now. October is yep. what we're thinking, Yeah. yeah.
1: We haven't quite set a date, but... Yeah, yeah. You can uh, go to the boattalk.org website and put your suggestions in there in the uh, contact us form to get the hold of the boat talk guys. That's boattalk.org. Could could I mention one
2: other thing? I think uh, due to the recent couple of lobster boat accidents and yeah. stuff, I I wish people would pay a little bit more attention to the rules of the road on the water. They're pretty pretty simple. Uh, last year uh, I was on a about a ten day trip in my boat. And on one day alone, we almost got run down twice by people who had no clue of what the r- r- rules of the road meant. And and uh, another occasion, uh, there was a, a, you know it happens, and I understand why. But a lobster boat was coming along, paying no attention at all. There was nobody at the wheel, and uh, I discovered that the man was had been standing back, too, for quite a while, plugging lobsters.
0: Yeah, off of Winter Harbor, uh, two lobster boats collided uh, a couple of weeks ago when a fisherman was killed, an old fellow uh, was killed. He was thrown out of the boat, and when he came out of the water, he he was dead.
2: Another yacht was run into in Pulpit Harbor a couple of weeks ago.
0: Yeah. At 4
2: in the morning, and uh, don't know why or how, but he ran into a big yacht and uh, caused her some damage, but, gee, uh, The boat was so rugged that he ran into, I think he must be feeling some pain.
0: Yeah. Now, when Giffy says rules of the road, let's imagine we're all run around in our cars, the stoplights are not working, and not everybody understands who ought to proceed from an intersection, like most of us sort of do, or but even, not all of us do in cars either, okay? Yeah. Or even in, which side of the road you're supposed to be driving on. And in boats, it's a lot more uncertain, That's and sure. even people that know the rules of the road always uh, reserve the last one, which is might makes right. So, I, you know, I'm a lot bigger than you, and, uh, you know, you don't cross in front of a tanker, even if technically speaking, you have the okay? right of way, okay? just for instance um just something to mention that's all yeah and it's very interesting the rules of the road like i say uh who knows what and there are there are a lot of them but again uh stay out of people's way and watch out and all, always uh you know always give way for another vessel if especially they don't look like they're gonna i think um, some people sometimes over rely on their autopilots too you know they just put
1: them yeah, on Absolutely, absolutely. And yeah. I've, I've seen collisions yeah. that
0: way, too. Yeah. It's, it's exactly. another way people <laughs> snag lobster traps around here. They just plow right ahead on the autopilot. you got to dodge them, yeah. you know. So anyway, look out ahead. we got something else to brag up to. Uh, Alan and I got approached by uh, Main Boats and Harbors Magazine, and uh, they would like us to be the MCs at, at the... Uh, the Boatyard Dog Trials. The 8th Annual World Championship Boatyard Dog Trials will be held at the Maine Boats and Harbor Show. It's it's August 13th to 15th at the Harbor Park down in Rockland. And uh, this year, the theme is Tradition Shapes Innovation. And they're going to have a big feature, a special exhibit on the evolution of the Maine lobster boat. could be really interesting. They'll have everything uh, um, displayed from a, a dory. To the current world's fastest lobster boat, which is going, what, over 60, 60 knots or so? 68, I think uh, it is. 70-something yeah. miles Holy an hour. God. I don't know about that.
2: Well, I think they selected a couple of good men because I'm aware of you, the fact that you guys do a lot of barking.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, the boatyard Dog Championship is a hoot, and as it says here in... Uh, the 8th Annual World Championship Boatyard Dog Trials, this zany head-to-paw competition among the Crean of Maine's Canine Corps will be held Sunday at 10.30 a.m. and is always a crowd favorite. Who is that? And uh, Alan and I will be uh, whipping up the crowd and, uh, like I say, uh, probably getting wet when the dogs shake. So uh, we'll be right there in the thick of it, and we look forward to seeing you down at the Harbor Park in Rockland. Well, we have a phone call,
1: so uh, let's divert to that for a minute. Let's see who's there. And go and see who's there.
0: Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Ooh, He's not there. Okay. No, we uh hope to get a cap uh, I'm sorry, uh Dr. Doug Jeromac on the phone uh pretty much right away at the University of Pennsylvania and we'll speak to him in just a minute. The uh, uh let's see uh where we got here. Now the thing about uh uh, offshore oil drilling, did anybody notice a very large ship offshore of the Breakwater in Rockland for a little while there? Ooh, no. um, it was called the Stenaforth. It was uh, 800 feet long. Uh, I believe it's gone now. And, uh, oh, it's a uh, Chanbro Corporation was hired to uh, replace some of the thrusters in this almost brand new ship. Now, it says here this, uh, the Stenaforth is designed to drill in water up to 10,000 feet. And it needed uh, deep water for the removal and replacement of these thruster units, which weigh, uh, um, oh, uh, 29 uh, tons or something, and are about the size of a pickup truck, a large pickup truck. I
1: can't imagine changing a thruster
0: in the water. In the water, done underwater by divers with, uh, you know, wrenches, and and they take them out and put them right back in, and, uh, you know... Chanbro Company has the expertise to do that. We have the deep water to do it, and that boat is now going to be headed off to Greenland, they say, probably to drill something in deep water. In
1: deep water. Best
0: of luck with that.
1: Downstream from us, too, or upstream from us. Yeah. Whatever it is. So, we have um, your friend Douglas. Uh,
0: Dr. Doug Jeromack from the uh, University of Pennsylvania. I have the, uh, well, I've kind of lost it here. Good morning, Doug. Are you there?
4: Yeah, I'm here. Good morning.
0: Good morning. Thank you for calling. Doug, uh, tell us what you do at the University of Pennsylvania.
4: Well, I study the movement of sediment um, driven by water and air. So that means that I study how rivers erode and deposit and the movement of coastlines and desert dunes and the erosion of mountain ranges um, from the tops of the mountains all the way out to the coast and the deep ocean.
0: And you've been looking into... um, how the oil might move in the Gulf of Mexico?
4: That's correct. A postdoctoral researcher um, of mine named Federico Falcini and myself, we've been using freely available satellite data on the internet to actually both track the movement of, of the oil slick and then to try to look at the different factors that might be driving it. And one of the most interesting factors that we found actually that drives the movement of the oil slick is sea surface elevation.
0: Wait, now, the uh, sea surface is all at sea level, Doug. It has to be. It's by definition, isn't it? I mean, uh, that kind of blew me away. I heard this concept the other day, and and, uh, the sea level is sea level, okay? But you're saying, no, it has ridges and valleys in it.
4: That's right. So on average, the sea is flat, right? Right. But that doesn't mean that there aren't deviations from that flatness. And so one way to imagine this is, You know, you have your coffee cup, and you put a spoon in it, and you stir it, right? And you see that the water kind of swirls to the outside and mounds up, and it kind of dips down in the inside. The average water level in your coffee cup is the same as when it was flat. But when you spin it, that acceleration and everything, it mounds up the water, so it's higher in some places and lower than others. So when you actually look at maps of the ocean sea surface height derived from satellites, it kind of looks like you're looking at a, uh, a contour map of a mountain range. You see big ridges and little valleys. The difference, of course, is that the variations we're talking about here in the Gulf of Mexico are on the order of a foot or two and not like a mountain range, you know, which would be, of course, miles. And the other thing is that these mountains move around. And so as the ocean currents change, the areas where the water is mounded up move around. And then one thing that we've been looking at, actually, is that as the Mississippi River starts to flood and a lot of water's charging out of the Mississippi, that that actually builds a little mound of water in front of the Mississippi.
0: Now, um, I'd like to point out one of the basic rules of the planet. Um, Stuff doesn't flow uphill. So wouldn't that affect how the oil, uh, which I guess we're looking at as as a sediment, um, is going to move?
4: Yes, and it does. And this is something that we've been looking into that was previously unnoticed, which is that um, when you get these mounds of sea surface height forming, because the oil is a slick that is less buoyant and so it's floating on top of the water, if you create a mound of water, it actually causes the oil to just slide downhill, kind of like a ball on a plate, And so you imagine you have a ball on a plate and you're tilting the plate back and forth and the ball's rolling back and forth. As the sea surface gets tilted by large gyres or eddies that are rotating or the push of the river, it actually causes the oil to kind of slide downhill. And in retrospect, it sounds kind of obvious that a less buoyant thing like oil would just kind of slide downhill. It actually runs counter to um, a lot of the previous thinking about the oil slick, which is that, well, it's sitting floating on water. The water's kind of dragging it along, and so the oil is basically following where the water's going. And we're actually finding that it's a combination of things. The oil is, is dragged along by the ocean currents. It is dragged along by the river plume pushing it, but it is also affected by the sea surface height. So if the, if the ocean's really flat and calm then the slick is going to be moved by winds and currents but if the ocean starts forming mounds and valleys then that topographic effect takes over and the oil more or less slides downhill that's what we're finding
0: i love what you said it's a combination of things i think that about everything you know people always try to get uh, single reasons for everything and simplify but it's always a combination of things um... being such a complex combination of things what's our ability to predict
4: well <laughs> I liken it to weather and climate, right? And, you know, you're exactly right. Um, A lot of people ask me, being a scientist, you know, they say, hey, Doug, how come you smart guys can't just predict tomorrow or next week where the oil is going to be? You know, we have all those people working on it. Well, I think actually at least people, because they hear the weather forecast every day, they kind of have an intuitive feeling that there's some things about weather we can know. But there's a lot of unknowables, there's a lot of complications, there's a lot of changing factors, so that we, our ability to forecast into the future goes down and down the further we look, right? But we know that it's going to be cold in the winter and it's going to be generally warm in the summer. It's the same thing with this, with this oil slick. So this topographic effect that we've identified is really just one factor. The winds, of course, really matter a lot. And as you know, you know, being out on the ocean up in Maine, it's not too different being out on the ocean in the Gulf of Mexico. The winds change from day to day, and often not in a very predictable way. And so what that means is that there are general ocean currents in the Gulf of Mexico, and we can predict that the oil will, on average, follow those ocean currents. So we might be able to predict the general direction of migration of the oil, and one thing that I think most scientists feel pretty sure of is that some oil will reach the Gulf, of, um, the Gulf Stream. And when that oil reaches the Gulf Stream, it's of course going to follow the course of the Gulf Stream. What we don't know is whether it's going to be a significant enough amount that it will make it far up the Atlantic coast, or whether it's just going to be a little bit. Um, there are things that we don't really know about, you know, the changing winds and, the, and, the, and hurricanes, of course, can disrupt everything. And so I would say that we can make pretty good forecasts about tomorrow and the next day. Our forecasts about a, a week or a few weeks from now are pretty bad, but then our general forecast over the next six months, to year horizon about where it might end up will be pretty good again.
0: Wow.
1: So, Doug, being a, a sedimentologist, which I assume probably is a lot of subsurface um, movement um, with all of the dispersants that are being put into this oil, I I'm, imagine there must be a lot of it that's also not on the wa- on top of the water. Is that going to? Uh, do you know of any um, predictions or movements of of that?
4: So that's a, larger a good body? question. That's a good question. I mean, there's of course we never we we have not had such a big leak at such great depths before. And one new thing that's happened with this oil spill that's never been done before is that they're actually applying these chemical dispersants at depth. So where the oil is leaking out of the well, they've been applying these chemical dispersants. Normally, we apply these chemical dispersants at the surface. And in fact, there have been a lot of um, unpredicted consequences of applying these dispersants at that depth. Um, Some people have blamed the fact that um, there's a lot of oil in the subsurface there's a lot of oil in the subsurface and on the bottom of the ocean that, you know, you think of oil as being less buoyant, that it floats to the top. One thing to remember is this is, this is crude oil, not refined oil, and so it has a lot of tar and things in it um, and heavier material that might not all float to the top. But some people, as we're recognizing that there are plumes of oil in the subsurface at different depths and even on the bottom of the ocean, some people are starting to say, hey, we think this maybe partly because we're applying dispersants at depth and so you're separating the oil into constituent you know into its constituents and the heavier stuff is falling out and that stuff may have gone all the way to the surface and so that's one question that we have now is whether the application of some of these dispersants is actually causing you know kind of blobs or pieces that are constituents of oil to sink that may have otherwise floated to the top and been easier to clean off. Um, I think the longer-term question, you're right. I mean, the, there's an issue that there's a lot of the stuff that's going to be um, sedimenting out at the bottom. Some of the constituents in oil are going to be binding to sediments that are coming out of, say, the Mississippi River plume. And so I think the long-term pollution question you know, will be actually, a lot of it will be tracking the sediments, because the stuff that's in the water eventually will be worked out of the Gulf of Mexico by the currents over a, you know, probably a couple-year time frame. But the stuff that gets bound up in sediments and sinks to the bottom will be there for a long time and potentially can get churned up by currents or hurricanes or things like that.
2: It'll, It'll be obvious to the shrimp fishermen, some of it, because a lot of their gear is right on bottom. Yes. So... They, they right. should be a pretty good source of information, I would think.
4: Yeah, and you know, you're actually right. Not, and and um, one reason that a lot of the um, fishermen are good sources for information there is actually their catches. So this is not my area of expertise, but biologists, colleagues of mine are actually now looking at the shells of oysters and also looking in the tissue of fish that are being caught by fishermen. And they're actually trying to track the spread of contaminants by what's being accumulated because you figure a lot of these, any organism that's a filter feeder that's living on the bottom sediments is actually going to accumulate inside of it contaminants that are from oil. And so they're now setting up programs to get a lot of these fishermen to give a sample of their catch of every different species that they have to the biologists to then look in the shells or to look in the, the tissue to see whether or not there's contaminants from oil,
0: and the ecology uh, is it's a pyramid scheme. On the bottom, you got phytoplankton and and uh, you know photosynthesizing photosynth- plankton and and regular plankton, and then the little fishes eaten by the bigger fishes, and on top you got let's say the tuna fish, you know, and it takes a hundred years to grow a big tuna fish. That's right. Yeah. Doug, uh, where can people, uh, is it possible to check out the topography uh, of the sea on, on the web somewhere, did I hear?
4: Yes, that's true. And in fact, if you give me just one second, I can pull up the web page so I can make sure to give you the right one. So um, the name of it is the Colorado Center for Astrodynamics Research, um, and that's, that's the center, and they have a web page called real time altimetry project um, sure. and the web page is probably a little bit too long to read to you but if you google that you should be able to find it and if you, fu- if you go to that web page for the Colorado Center for Astrodynamics Research, the real time altimetry project you can click on um, links that say things like near real time SSH anomaly that means sea surface height anomaly and anomaly means things that are sticking up or below the average elevation. And so actually you can click there and you can enter in the coordinates that you're interested in looking at anywhere on the world and you can pull up a map of sea surface height. And because it varies every day, they make these maps every day. And these maps are generated from satellites that are actually orbiting the planet and they're measuring the height of the sea surface to better than than an inch.
0: Wow. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. Doug, so much different things to talk to you about, but uh, um, you're going to have to get going here in a minute. And yep. uh, is there some way people can check out what you're involved in? And you're, uh, as you said, your graduate student working there, too.
4: Yeah, um, well, you know, of course, we, we're working on papers right now, publishing in the scientific literature, but that stuff's pretty dry um, <laughs> for the general populace. But, um, you know, if you just, there aren't very many Gerald Macs in the world. So actually, if you type in Douglas Gerald Mac a E R O L M A C K in the web, um, my uh, work web page is the first thing that pops up. And so if you click on that, I have a web page. It just discusses the general research that we do in my group with links to my laboratory um, and the names of papers that we publish.
0: Excellent, Doug. I, I want to thank you this morning. Go ahead, okay. Giffey. No, I just want to say thank you, too. It's interesting.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Thanks a lot, guys. And, well, thank
0: you. And just to uh, uh, talking about uh, uh, webs and stuff, the connection here is that... Um, Uh, Your brother, Ian, uh, signed up as a volunteer to help build Raw Faith, which has been a subject of intense interest around Boat Talk here over the years. And uh, that's how I got to know Ian, and uh, that's why, uh, um, you know, uh, through uh, my friend Tom McKay, uh, we're all speaking this morning, so it's all connected, man. It's pretty cool.
4: Yeah, it's great.
0: Yeah, we thank you so much, Doug. Yeah, sure. uh, Thank you, guys. have, Have a good day in the lab today. Dr. Douglas Jerome Mack from the University of Pennsylvania. The ocean is not all at sea level. (laughs) I'm still having a hard time. Got to accepting that. And the phone seems to be ringing in the background here. We're doing boat talk this morning. We're talking about the oil spill and stuff so far. The number here is 1-866-625-9378. And... Dennis Damon. Yeah, we've got uh, Senator Dennis Damon on the phone now. Good Good, morning. Good morning,
1: Senator. Good morning. Good morning to you all.
0: Um, You're on the Atlantic
1: Fisheries Council, is that correct?
3: Uh, Well, it's the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. uh, That's more correct. Okay, yes. Uh, It is the um, group of uh, commissioners. There are three from each state, from Maine to Florida, and we are charged with um, managing the some of the migratory fish species that inhabit the east coast of the United States.
0: And is this connected to the mess in the Gulf as well, Dennis? Um, Can you tell me if there isn't anything
3: that is not connected to it?
0: Excellent point.
3: Of course it is. Uh, We're very concerned about that. There is the, (coughs) pardon me, there is the uh, Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, and then there is a Gulf uh, States Marine Fisheries Commission and a West Coast state. So all of the um, contiguous border states of the ocean in the United States um, are charged with uh, the same responsibility that the ASMFC is. And so when something affects one area, uh, it, it, in my opinion at least, it affects every area. So of course we're concerned.
0: We were just uh, pointing out that it takes 100 years to grow a tuna fish. They swim uh, incredibly fast and go a lot of different places, including uh, you may have the same tuna fish in the Gulf of Mexico and the Gulf of Maine, correct?
3: Exactly right, and from what I understand is that the uh, the nursery area, the the breeding area, is in the Gulf of Mexico, but yet uh, right offshore here the giant bluefin tuna are uh, a sight to behold, and they have come from that area. The the other, just as a quick little bit of an aside, in the Sagasso Sea south of Bermuda is where eels uh, oftentimes breed, and those eels that come up and ride up along the east uh, coast of the United States uh, uh, in the waters of the Gulf Stream, that river offshore, uh, the ones that turn left and come into uh, North, uh, North America, those elders that we uh, know about and that sometime now are harvesting, uh, they're American eels. But yet the ones that continue to ride the Gulf Stream River and, and go up through the North Atlantic and go into Europe they become European eels. So you talk about having things tied together. That's amazing to me. And, and this oil spill, uh, when and if it should come around the tip, southern tip of Florida and get into the Gulf Stream and work its way along the East Coast, it will have a direct impact, my belief, again, uh, on our fisheries. And even if it doesn't, it has a huge impact, obviously, on the Gulf. I was listening to um, the speaker before uh, fascinating information about the, the sea level and the, uh, we know of the up and down of the rise of the tides and the, and the uh, waves uh, having hills and valleys, but when you have a whole um, uh, section of water that is uh, raised or lowered by the effects that he describes, that's an interesting piece. The other, if I might, um, piece that's causing me some personal concern, I don't have the scientific data, but I have some fair amount of common sense that Dot and Lou gave me when I was born. Um, this oil dispersion, this chemicals that we're using to, um, well, break up the oil.
0: Get it out of sight.
3: Have it sink. Get it out of Get sight. Get it out of sight. Hopefully out of mind. Uh, it does, it's, it's a matter, of, I was having a dinner the other night with some people, and we were talking about this. There was something that I learned in school that matter can neither be created nor destroyed, so if you take all of that dark, tarry liquid up on the surface and you apply some chemicals to it and sink it, that doesn't mean that it isn't there anymore. It means that it's not on the surface anymore, and it's either somewhere suspended in the water column or it's gone all the way down again to the floor of the sea. And that benthic arena where there is so much life, where the, where the um, uh, planktons and the zoophytes and all of the other things that I don't know about their names, but I do know that they're part of the web, the food web, that is, not the worldwide web. Um, they're important to us, and they're important to the rest of the food chain. And if we are blanketing them uh, and their environment with oil and now some chemicals, uh, that can't be a good thing. Well,
2: some, some of the lighter uh, oil, I believe, will find evaporates.
3: And, and the evaporation piece, too. I think you're absolutely right on that. But that doesn't mean that it has disappeared. It's evaporated into our atmosphere.
0: Because uh, it's been neither created nor destroyed. Right,
3: That's a basic principle.
0: Yeah. And even
3: if we were to burn it, and I saw that there were some attempts at doing that, that again is to get it off the surface. Um, the component pieces of that combustion are still with us. Somewhere.
0: Well, a lot of people think that uh, we have uh, un- unintended liabilities from burning the stuff for a hundred-odd years now, you know. Mm.
3: Well, again, I'm not a scientist. I, I, don't, I couldn't give you the actual facts on that, but it just seems to me that it's not a good thing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, so what's happening with the, uh, like, say, commission that you're sitting on? What, what's, uh, what's the buzz?
3: There, have been, um, there has been real concern with the commissioners. We have another meeting. Uh, we, have, we meet four times annually. We have another meeting coming up in the first week of August. Um, I'm sure that this is part of our meeting agenda. Um, but I'll let me just tie this into this: the impact that this oil has on the environment um, for the fish. We are meeting uh, the New England commissioners, um, a meeting in a special meeting uh, just next week uh, down in Providence, dealing with a, an issue that has a closer impact to us here in Maine, and that is the collapse of the lobster fishing industry and, and uh, lobster fishing uh, resource in southern New England. Southern New England is the zone that is uh, most uh, defined by the Long Island Sound, uh, south of Cape Cod, and into the offshore um, where the canyons are by the, uh, Grand, not the Grand Banks, but, you know, the continental shelf.
0: And it's being contemplated right now to have a five-year moratorium on catching any lobsters in that area. Correct?
3: It is being contemplated. That's going to be one of the decisions that we, one of the uh, possibilities that we will consider at the meeting uh, next week. That is a uh, unprecedented um, uh, effect if we if we were to do that.
2: I'd like to throw in one other thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know how it applies, but. In my younger years, in the the late 40s and early 50s, I used to be going up and down Long Island Sound all the time. Uh, And there was no lobstering there then. You didn't see any lobster trap boys anywhere. We never run across
0: them. We used to see them 20-odd years ago.
2: Yeah, 20 years ago, but not 40, 50 years ago. And not now. And so well, the, they're fishing now, but some of them oh, are very, dying out. Very few yeah, far I between. I talked to lobster fishermen down there, and, and some of them just literally sold out what they could.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, we get a lobster fisherman who sells out. Is he ever going to come back? How about the dock he was landing at and the people yeah. he was selling to and all the infrastructure? Well, there's,
2: an, there's another factor, too, that comes into that equation. There There has been some lobster disease, shell disease, further south. Yes, that's absolutely correct.
3: Well,
0: it may be good for the lobsters not to catch them, but the water's getting hot, and that's not good for lobsters ever, uh, to the southern of us, and the water's warming here as well.
3: There, is, there are complex factors in all of this. I, I use that as an example, the collapse of the fishery in southern New England, and the gentleman is correct. Um, there can be a case made for the cyclical nature of lobsters coming into or leaving an area. Um 50, 60 years ago, there perhaps wasn't any fishing. More recently, there was a robust fishing. All of a sudden, there was a real collapse. Uh, they couldn't exactly uh, pinpoint what it was tied to. Some were trying to claim that it was tied to the spraying from mosquitoes. Remember when there was the issue of uh,
0: West, Nile. West
3: Nile virus, and there was a lot of spraying in the in that area where there's uh, a lot of people, and that, that some of that wash was now getting into the water and affecting the juvenile lobsters. That hasn't been to my understanding, proven conclusively, but it could be, have been a factor that would have contributed to it. And there were a number of factors. As, as with most things, uh, there is no single silver bullet uh, cause. But my point to this is that, that that industry and that resource is in peril in southern New England waters for whatever reason. Warm water, uh, pesticides, overfishing, I couldn't tell you the exact reason. But now, if we can layer in another Piece, which might be some migration of Gulf of Mexico oil coming up into that region by way of the Gulf Stream. Again, that oil isn't going to be the, the um, cause of the collapse, but it could continue to lead to a um, uh, delay in the recovery.
0: Wow, and and the uh, myriad of uh, those, uh, like say, combination of thing factors there, we have also met the enemy.
2: Well, there's there's so many factors that it isn't funny. And uh, another thing is just uh, stormwater runoff. Uh, You know, you've got, from from my years, the the number of automobiles on the road has, you know, just quadrupled and, uh, or more, and. You'd run off from all that stuff.
3: The the non point source pollution. You are absolutely correct. The amount of paving that has gone on from the down in that region from the time of your youth until now that is uh, that causes that runoff uh, that could have oil contaminants into it from vehicles, could have pesticide contaminants in it, could have fertilizer contaminants in it, could have human contaminants in it, and it all now is running. You were talking about uh, the water running downhill, well, it all runs to the sea. Everything runs to the sea. And yeah. and there's so many more people there uh, in that region uh, than there were perhaps in your youth that that can be another contributing factor. One of the great quotes that I have heard from my time at the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission and, and my time in the legislature on the um, uh, Marine uh, Resources Committee is that fisheries management isn 't rocket science
0: uh-huh. it 's harder <laughs> some people call fisheries management an oxymoron too you know, <laughs> you know
3: yeah. i know it 's but my, my point is it is a very, very difficult thing to do because if you can even manage the resource, the fish, you still now are layered with the problem of the fishermen, yeah, and that is something that you cannot separate out it 's not an easy thing to do, and there is always going to be
0: disagreement. Mm. Senator Dana, Dennis Damon on the phone uh, boy we're glad to talk to you this morning Dennis and and, and uh, um, I can't wait to see how it all turns out yeah yeah. and don't forget that uh, the
2: gentleman here as you referred to me is is the nut that calls you on the phone once in a while about title generation. <laughs> 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 oh, well, now I thought I remembered the voice.
0: Small neighborhood, Dennis, all connected. <laughs> it, it
1: okay, is, have it, a good day. Is, yeah. Thank you. Thank, Thank, you, you. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you, Dennis.
0: We are doing Boat Talk this morning, and it's been a fairly interesting conversation so far, but we haven't heard from you. The number here 625 1-866-625-9378, and I believe we got Yo standing by on the phone.
5: Good morning. Yes, this is Captain Yo at yeah. Tremont. And perhaps uh, in the face of the oil apocalypse, this is a moot point. But I wanted to comment about your remarks about the rules of the road. There are two classes of people who do not observe the rules of the road. And one of those is people who are ignorant of those rules. And one of those is uh, people who, just plain, don't observe them. There's a long tradition in seafaring for those who make their livings on the sea that it is unmanly to follow the rules. And I think we've all seen plenty of examples of that, not just fishermen, I hasten to say.
2: Oh, no, I wasn't referring to just fishermen at all.
5: Yes, well, you do see a lot of it. And then, of course, you know, pleasure boaters, they don't really know which way to turn. The most important rule that is not observed is keeping a proper lookout. There's a lot of complacency nowadays about technological enhancements to visibility like radar and things like that. But it's still really important to have a set of eyes looking over the bow, particularly with large and fast vessels. Now, the the thing I really took issue with was uh, when you said might makes right. Now, there is a provision in the rules whereby a burdened vessel should be given priority if its size and the depth of the water mean that it is limit, limited in maneuverability and uh, fishing vessels and whatnot. So there are exceptions which provide for not forcing the right-of-way right of over a larger vessel. But your suggestion that everybody adopt the policy of keeping out of other vessels' way could quickly get very Chaotic.
0: It's a good yeah, point. Uh, it does yeah. make it confusing if everybody yeah. defers to everybody else. You the have privileged a privileged
5: vessel is required under the laws, the collision avoidance laws, to maintain course and speed. So just because you do have the right of way doesn't mean you have a uh, license to maneuver in any which way. And yes, in extremis we've all put the helm down quite hard and opened the throttle or cast off the main sheet or whatever. When we suddenly realized that we simply were not seen through the mainsail, through the jib, through the pilot house, or whatever. And in such cases, you realize that uh, there are just way too many people out there who are just paying no mind to it. Yep, the other yep. thing I wanted to say is on the subject of the oil apocalypse, and it's just my testimony from this morning. But after several days of southerlies, as I was cycling to the shop, There were several occasions on the Tremont Road here on the west side of Mount Desert Island where I noticed a very unusual aromatic smell. Now, I can't say if it's a local source or a distant source, but I'd never quite smelled it before. It didn't smell like car exhaust. It didn't smell like something burning it. It smelled a little sweet, you know, the way paints do so it may be that these southerlies have brought the aromatic hydrocarbons all the way here to maine not that i want to be an alarmist or paranoid or anything <laughs> it's just my observation this morning that i wanted to share with all our listeners
0: thank you for calling this
1: morning. thank you for
5: running the show guys all right, man. You thank, you. thank you
1: we do have another call good morning welcome to boat talk Good morning. This is Sonny Perkins. Hey, Sonny.
0: How are you doing? My friend, Captain Sonny Perkins, down to uh, Penobscot. Now, Captain uh, Sonny used to be a, uh, well, he started off as an able-bodied seaman, and as he he uh, likes to joke, he uh, was kind of hot, so he wanted to get inside and uh, come up through the hose pipe and went captain. And you spent a number of years working for oil companies, um, captaining um, anchor supply tugs, right? That's
6: right. Uh, almost all of them. And... Uh, it's in yoping A lot of people think that the uh, Gulf of Mexico bottom is shaped like a bowl. But it isn't. It's it's like a series of canyons. Uh, I, I set out one rig. It, it was a Trans Ocean rig. Well, at that time, they were called Trans World. It was the Ocean Queen. And the north side of our anchor string was in 500 feet of water. And the south side was in 1,800 feet of water. Wow. And, yeah. A, and... Uh... We did an experiment one day on board uh, while I was just showing the crew. We took a cup of uh, Gulf crude oil and put it in a five-gallon bucket of water. And it immediately formed a big ball on the bottom of this tub. And then there was little streams of the aromatics and the other stuff that's in the oil that would rise to the surface. But 80%, or that stayed in a ball on the bottom, and that's what's happening now.
0: It's not just simple that oil floats on water, now is it?
6: Uh, crude oil does not float on water. Yeah, uh, it it sinks things like
0: a ball. So, Sonny, you've spent years, uh, like I say, working on um um in the oil uh, uh business there on supply tugs, anchor tugs, uh, taking things back and forth to rigs and uh, doing jobs around the rigs, but and also uh, towing rigs. And such all around the world, you've also worked on uh, th- at least three big oil spills, haven't you? Uh,
6: yeah. You yeah. What it. worked on is that's also called an oxymoron, but uh, uh, we, we were there, and that there really isn't much you can do. Uh, the oil booms that they put out—they're uh, great on a lake, you know, uh, on absolutely flat, calm surface. You know, they—they uh, they will work. You can contain uh, a small amount of oil. But any kind of a wake, any kind of a chop will just push it just over the other edge of the boom. So you're just raking up the same oil over and over and over. And the number of boats that are involved right now in that oil spill in the Gulf, they're saying 3,000.
0: And when you talk to your friends down there, what do they say they're doing all day?
6: Uh, They're going in figure eights. Uh, circles and 10 miles north and south. And there are collisions every day. Uh, it's, uh, it's just mass confusion.
0: And they're looking busy. What are they accomplishing?
6: I don't think they're accomplishing a whole lot. And, uh, mainly, what, what it is, it's, it's a feel-good thing. It's a PR thing for BP.
0: We get look, the oil out of sight and we make the boats look busy.
6: Yep, yep. And look what we're doing to contain this. Uh, I mean, they really can't come on national TV and shrug their shoulders and say, there's nothing we can do. Uh, so they've got to do something. But uh, the horrible part is, you know, this, this thing gushing up from the pipe, you know, it's the, everything is going hundreds of feet up into the uh, water, and then the heavy stuff just falls back, and you're getting maybe 20% of the aromatics. And the other light stuff in the crude is hitting the surface. But the rest of the stuff is just one big ball rolling around on the floor of the Gulf of Mexico. And whatever it hits, it kills. Now, there's, I think it's the only natural coral uh, reef in the Gulf of Mexico. It's called the Flower Gardens. And it's, oh, just off the southern coast of Louisiana and the coast of Texas. And it's beautiful. Uh, I've dove on it several times, and i I think it's going to kill it
2: mm. well well let, let me ask a, a kind of a stupid question away uh, what what what's you feeling on uh, you know this deep water oil drilling? Uh, because after all we're we're hungrier and hungrier and hungrier for fuel uh I see some of these uh, yachts that burn a tremendous amount of fuel. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of big vehicles that burn a lot of fuel. What do we do about it? I mean, we're you're going, we're, we're drilling in, in more dangerous and deeper and harder places to work. Yeah, They're talking now about drilling in the Arctic.
0: And your Not, friends, your, your old neighbors down in the Gulf there are saying, oh, my God, what a mess. Uh, how could this have happened? But don't please stop drilling and, uh, you know, making the money go around.
6: Oh, that's, that's half their economy. Yeah. and uh, By the way, Gippy, hi. How are you doing? I haven't talked to you since I saw you. Well, well you're backyard.
2: lucky. Don't complain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
6: yeah so, good, uh, it's,
2: good to hear you, too.
6: Well, the whole thing is, uh, Gippy, uh, the fuel, that's only part of the problem. Look around your home. Look at how many things are made of plastic. Every bit of that comes from petroleum products.
2: Absolutely,
6: every yeah. bit of it, and and we're, we're wedded to it. There's, n- I, I, don't think there's anything we can do. They can talk about wind power. They can talk about solar. They can talk about everything they want to, but that's all they're doing is talking about it. Yeah. You know, and there's, I, I don't think we can unwind ourselves.
2: From well, I, it. I think, I think you may be right. The other thing is. To, to hit on is just uh, well, even even the cars today. Mm-hmm. A, lo- a lot yeah. of the parts, you know, body parts are plastic. Yeah, I've got a Jeep Compass, and
6: uh, it's probably sixty percent plastic, yeah. except for the frame. Mm-hmm. You no, know? uh, and there's there's not much they can do. You know, but as far as the Gulf goes, there's no coordination. You know, every oil company is representative. They have to be, you know, and they all want to be in charge. So nobody's in charge.
0: Hey, I saw a guy on a BP commercial today. He says he volunteered to be in charge, and they're going to make everything right. I saw that on the (laughs) commercial this morning, man.
6: Yeah, and he's spent slick. probably the last twenty years of his butt polishing a chair.
0: It was some slick, as a matter of fact. <laughs> hey, Sonny, one more thing before we let you go here. Uh, Giffy asked me about booms uh, before we went on the air, and and uh, trying to get a picture of these booms. Now, the boom is not just a little sausage on on the surface, is it? It, it uh, has a skirt too, doesn't it, generally?
6: Yes, it does. Uh, well, the booms that I'm familiar with did. They had uh, it, it's about an eighteen inch skirt below, and is weighted. So that anything that would normally go under the boom would be caught there. Yeah, you know, But that's not what the worry is. The boom itself is only about eight inches high. Yeah,
0: and again, stuff, you just yep. see stuff slop right oh, over. Oh, yeah. Yep.
6: And uh, you got boats coming over, see what you're doing, you know? and they make a wake. Yep. And when they turn around and go away, it makes a bigger wake. Uh, so everything gets, not everything, but a, a lot of it just gets washed over the top. And you have to go around and get that again, but here again, it's just mainly a feel-good measure. You're you, you're not getting a whole lot, you know. And yeah, you, know, you can wash every pelican you want to, you know, but they're still going to die. Yeah, because they've eaten it.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, well, we've got a hard problem to face in the years to come. I feel.
6: I, I think this is probably the largest natural disaster that we've unleashed.
0: And you were uh, around the Yucatan spill back in 79 over yeah. in Nigeria. Um, seen, uh, you know, and Venezuela. Yeah. yeah, been some places, seen some stuff. Uh... Yeah. And Sonny, uh, i got to make one little, uh, uh, oh, it's almost a Boat Talk pun on the way out here. We're talking booms. Uh, you were talking about diving on those reefs there. You know diving. You were an underwater demolition technician in the United States Navy and a, and a Navy SEAL. So you know booms.
6: Yeah, I do. <laughs> <A> big boom. <laughs> hey, by the way, Spargle
0: says hi. Morning, Spargle. How's it going this morning? <laughs> yeah. Spargle's the dog. Yeah. yeah. Well, so listen, you guys have a nice day. Thank you, Sonny. Oh, thank Very you, Sonny. interesting. Bye. Thank you. Yeah, we're talking about uh, the thing this morning uh, happening down in the Gulf. Here's a uh, quote from a fisherman who's a bayou keeper down there who went out on it with his boy out to see what was happening. He says, um, this is in the uh, uh, Working Waterfront, uh, current uh, July edition, He says, I'm not a real emotional and consider myself a pretty tough guy. You have to be to survive as a fisherman. As I left that scene, tears flowed down my face and I cried, something I have not done in a long time but would do several more times that day. I tried not to let my grandson, Scotty, see me crying because I didn't think he'd understand. But I was crying for his stolen future, and now this will be the same for decades to come. The damage is going to be immense, and I do not think our lives here in South Louisiana will ever be the same. And like I say, that's from a well-known tough guy. Can I share just one more? We talked to Senator De- Dennis Damon this morning about governance. And this is a little clip from Time Magazine about oil exploration over in Nigeria. And uh, here's a quote from a fellow who, uh, mind you, is in Nigeria. and is an anti-corruption campaigner. There's a lot of job security. He says, oil powers the world, but in Africa it creates places in which... No longer do people think about how to build a nation, only how to steal from it. Now, you know, uh, not much of that going on around here, but how about this? Oil should be a boon. In Norway, the discovery of North Sea oil in the 60s took a European backwater with an economy based on fish, trees, and ships and gave it one of the world's highest standards of living and an economic diversity spanning green energy and cancer research. But in the Gulf of Guinea... Where most of Africa's discovered oil lies, the combination of an industry built by barons and roughnecks and a region marked by weak and ineffectual governance has been a disaster, hurting the environment, human rights, and development. And, uh, you know, let's, uh, let's just say that, uh, you know, some regulation seems to be necessary for, for uh, managing the human uh, scene here.
2: Yeah, on the other hand, it's another view of it is Think of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of oil rigs there is in the ocean. Thousands of oil rigs. Yeah, more coming. And and they and they don't have any, and they, they're well run and uh, under difficult conditions, and they don't have oil spills.
1: Admittedly, this is a terrible one. Mm. Well, I'd like to, uh, oh, I wouldn't like to, but I uh... I think I should defend the oil companies slightly on the dispersant issue as as not just there to uh, make it less visible. Um, Oil is ultimately biodegradable, but it needs to be very, very small little particles for uh, bacteria or whatever to to, uh, break it down. And the idea of spraying this dispersant into the uh, oil, especially right at the bottom as it's coming out, is to, uh, in theory break that oil up into smaller particles so it'll be more more readily biodegradable. Um, unfortunately, the uh, what they're breaking it up with is, has been mentioned before is a chemical called Corexit, which um, the, the, um, the chemicals that are in it are somewhat unknown. They don't even have to tell the EPA what's in it. But one of the major chemicals is a, a chemical called 2-butyl ethanol, which is... And is kind of an alcohol, a tertiary alcohol, which is known to be toxic. So the question comes up then is, if you got this oil spill going on, why add more toxics to it? There must be some sort of better dispersants than, than that. I mean, people make biodegradable soap, which is basically a d- detergent.
0: Well, let's say we care more about out of sight than we do toxicity, and there we go. As I was just saying, here we are worrying about the environment, human rights, and development. I don't think
2: it's that. I think they're under so much pressure, so much pressure to do anything they can do. They're just desperate to to do whatever they can do.
0: Yeah,
2: it's not. It's there's no easy solution. That's.
0: Well, like I say, we're balancing uh, human rights, the environment, and, and against uh, you and, know the tradition of and, power and, and money. And,
2: and three of us, when we leave here, are going to get in our vehicles and drive home.
0: You wouldn't believe the number of miles I've been putting in uh, the last little bit, yeah. uh, ping-ponging here and there all over Hancock County, and you're completely correct. Couldn't do it without it, well, you know? We could all go back to horses and wagons, but I don't think it'd be... Well, when I said it's all power and money, I meant that power, I guess, in several different uh, <laughs> yeah. forms, you know. But uh, you know what does spin the world? Uh, I don't know. We we can't strictly speaking editorialize around here, but it's boat talk, you know. Uh, so anyway, we're just saying what we think, and uh, we have been doing boat talk this morning. I think it's been kind of interesting. I'd like to thank uh, Doug, Doctor Doug Jeromac, from the. Uh, University of Pennsylvania, uh, Senator Dennis Damon from Trenton, Maine, and uh, Captain Sonny Perkins from down in Penobscot, and uh, you for listening this morning. We do this once a month, second Tuesday of the month, and, uh, you know, stay tuned for that. Check out the website, boattalk.org, and, uh, you know, stay tuned for the rest of the WERU Day. Back to music in a few minutes there.
3: Talk is made
6: possible in part by the Red Fern Boat Company of Hancock County, since 1982
0: offering maintenance, storage, and restoration for powerboats and sailboats, also offering dockage on Mount Desert Island, redfernboat.com.